What are the connections between cognitive capacity, motivation, threat, and reward? How do organizations that prioritize psychological safety differ in terms of business performance from those that don't? What cognitive levers should organizations think about when executing change initiatives in order to manage threat, motivate their teams, and drive positive business outcomes? On this episode of Your Brain at Work, Dr. Emma Saro and Dr. Ryan Curl provide answers to these questions and more, sharing key findings from our latest neuroleadership journal, Managing Threat Response in the Workplace. I'm Evan McFalls, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work. Enjoy. I'm super excited to be here with my teammate, Ryan Curl. Um, if anyone has watched any of the foundation sessions, we sometimes go on together and riff on science. So um, we'll do a lot of the same today. Um, so today's session is all around really our new, oh, I'm so sorry, my cat always in the way. Um, all around our newest hot off the press paper, um, managing the threat response in the workplace. Um, and it's something that applies to all of us in the workplace, even outside of the workplace. But, um, you know, as we'll cover the our threat system, this amazing evolutionary development that we have, we can sense, rapidly respond to just about anything around us that could cause us harm. It's an amazing system, incredibly sensitive. It overrides all of their systems that we have and incredibly fast. Um, but in the workplace, it can tend to lead to more maladaptive behaviors maybe impact our ability to innovate, collaborate, focus. Um, and one of our primary authors on this article, Ryan Curl, is with us today. I'm so sorry. This is really <laughs> embarrassing. Um, is one of our, our the top authors on, on the article today is with us. He's our expert, our resident expert in the threat system. And he's going to talk about, you know, why it is the case that the threats that we sense in the workplace are just as impactful as they are maybe physical or outside the workplace um, and what we can do to better manage them so that we can actually um, collaborate, focus, and do all the things that we need to do um, in the workplace. So um, what's interesting about this and what leads us to really dive into the science is that in the modern world, um, you know, we rarely face the physical threats so much in the corporate world. Yes, there absolutely are. We still need this system. But what's interesting about this is that the, the threats that we tend to respond to um, are social ones, are the social interactions that we're facing every single day. Um, and what's interesting is that they tend to engage the same neural circuitry as they do for physical threats. Um, and so in order to get us kind of started in this on this journey, understanding the neuroscience and how to manage them, I just want to start with a bit of like um, a place setting, let's say, just so we can all kind of like reference, let's say, the feelings that we get when we're in any of these any of these social scenarios. So I'm just going to set up a scenario and I'd love to hear the kinds of feelings that we're getting. And we all have our own subjective feelings for these threat responses. Um, and they all tend to engage the same systems. Um, so setting up the scenario, you come into work on Monday, you've worked all weekend, let's say on something that you're ready to show your, your manager or present. Um, the first thing you come to find out is that all of the project parameters have changed. 
deadline shifted earlier. Um, some of the stuff that you did over the weekend isn't really relevant anymore. So you dive right in to start focusing. You have to focus all day. Within the first 30 minutes, let's say your manager comes in to tell you that the latest report that you formatted and turned in was done incorrectly. So you'll have to do it again, or she's going to give it to somebody else to do. So this is one more thing on top of what you already had focused on, only to come to find out that you might've done something wrong. And then within about 10 seconds of the door closing, your direct report comes in to say that you need to sign off on his PTO. Um, and can you do it right now? So all of this has just kind of impacted you within maybe the first hour of work on a Monday. You're already exhausted. Um, how do you think you'll feel? I'd love to hear many of your thoughts. And how would you feel, Ryan, to start us off? Yeah, I mean, if you're really... Uh dealing with all that stuff and all of a sudden your cat won't leave you alone it's like geez you know it's the straw that broke the camel's back there the cat. <laughs> Just i love that the, the chat is loving the cat by the way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think for me, i mean and i love how you uh you know you set up that situation too where you know it's hard to i think in a workplace too and in the you know in the flow of work to like sort of compartmentalize uh threats in some degree like they end up compounding and building in your mind's eye right and your and your stress and your threat uh increase over time when maybe you're dealing with separate unrelated issues. Um, but it's hard to see it that way. I think a lot, especially, uh, especially in the moment. Yeah. Right. It's hard to, it's hard to directly in the moment kind of change your thought process. Um, yeah. and here's just another one and we're getting some amazing, um, responses here. All of them we've all felt in the workplace, anxious, overwhelmed, undervalued, um, yeah. even like a feeling of a pit in your stomach. That's exactly how all of us feel. Um, and it's all relatively the same or one really easy one. You're, pitching a new project to a group of leaders um, or to a client and your manager in the room interrupts you halfway through, tells you that you're either speaking too long or you're wrong and proceeds to take over. So how would that instantly throw you into a state um, of confusion, distraction? Um, you'd probably feel a little flushed in the face, panic. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, panic. I, I love the the rush of. I mean, I don't love it, but the the uh, awareness of the rush of adrenaline from Karen too. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a, a key factor, and it says something about you know uh, the sort of fine line between physical and social threats too. You know, the adrenaline can be useful. We'll talk about this. I think we'll dig totally. quite deeply into this uh, in a bit. But uh, you know, the idea that one primary purpose of adrenaline is to um, is to increase our, our ability to engage in a physical response, right? But we can kind of harness a little bit of it to, to do the more day-to-day -day typical stuff in a workplace too. So the adrenaline balance, I think is really important to consider as well. Absolutely. And I think to lead into kind of what we're going to talk about today, does anyone have any strategies that they already have in place for this? Like, what do you do in the moment? Um, it's, it's hard unless you have something like really well built into your, into your own like your habit array, let's say. Yeah, I love what Tony said too, that that, that uh, they would challenge the manager on the spot. <laughs> I really? mean, so what, what kind of environment would you have to have in place to do that? And that's yeah. maybe something we'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To feel comfortable enough to do that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so these are great. Um, yeah. And I think really sets us up to talk about like why this happens and like what can we start thinking about doing based on the science and what we know about the underlying circuitry of like why we respond this way and what brain systems are engaged this way. Um, I'd love to pass it on to Ryan to talk about like what is under the hood here, what's going on. Yeah, thanks Emma. So when 
when we think about a threat response, uh, especially resp when we're responding to a physical threat or a social threat, I think a, a reasonable in, uh, understanding, but maybe a bit of an oversimplification, is to think about a progression of activity from our prefrontal cortex, which is really responsible for our higher level functioning, our ability to be creative, to think critically, to uh, kind of juggle disparate ideas in our mind, right? That's all that kind of higher level uh, human functioning that we're capable of. But when we're starting to feel more stress, more threat, more pressure, this, the activity in our brain shifts from that higher level um, parts of our brain to this lower level, sort of evolutionarily old parts of our brain, um, kind of encompassed by in a term called the limbic system, which is responsible for preparing our threat response, right? So what the limbic system does in this context anyway, is it pulls from you know our emotional centers, like our amygdala, our memorial centers, like our hippocampus, and it starts to take that information, compare it to what we're experiencing in the real world and, and begin to prepare a response. And there's other areas of the brain that are responsible for that, uh, for the response side of things. But, you know, that would be a situation like, hey, what is this thing in front of me? Oh my God, that's a predator. I need to run. I need to, I need to hide. I need to fight, right? Which is quite uh, a different level of neural processing than, you know, I need to think critically about what's going on here. Maybe my manager has another... Uh, reason for their behavior, right? These sort of more higher level complex uh, reinterpretations, which we'll get into later of a situation versus a fight or flight response that this sort of limbic system is preparing for um, when, when we're kind of in these high threat uh, situations. Uh, and so I think what's important to understand too, is that, you know, it's not all or nothing. We're not all prefrontal cortex or all limbic system uh, throughout the day in any, in any different circumstance. We're somewhere in between most of the time, right? Um, and maybe we can um, yeah, maybe we can move on from there and, and talk about how like we've sort of uh, segmented that in terms of the different threat responses that we can face. So, you know, it's not that we're always fully functioning prefrontal cortex or, you know, ready to run out the door. We're somewhere in between a lot of the time. And what we've what, what we've kind of deduced from the research and, and a way to sort of understand that is through threat levels. Uh, so we can talk about being under a small amount of threat, or, uh, you know, a level we call that a level one threat, which is being alert, uh, but not alarmed. Uh, and that's a generally, depending on the task at hand, a useful place to be, a little bit of stress, which is really the heart. If it's um, adaptive, it's a, a strong motivational force, right? It's the reason we move forward. It's the reason we, we can accomplish a task. It might not be great for, you know, creative thinking um, or, or re relaxation, right? But it's good to kind of get the job done. Uh, mm -hmm. But then we can get into these more deleterious areas. Uh, uh, aspects of threat, especially in the workplace, which we would call a level two or a level three uh, threat, which would be highly alert and somewhat alarmed and highly alert and highly alarmed, which are not, they're not objectively bad places to be. It's all about whether or not our threat response is commiserate with the experience that we're facing in the world, right? If you're face-to-face -face with a predator, you, I hope you're in a level threat, uh, a level three threat, right? You need to be. That's right for the situation. But so often in the workplace, we find ourselves in these situations where our threat response is probably not finely tuned and adaptive for the situation we're actually facing. And that gets to what Emma was saying before, too, that we really only have one threat response system that, mm -hmm. that uh, responds to both physical threats and social threats that we experience, let's say, in the workplace too. So it really behooves us to have techniques to manage this threat response, especially in our kind of social workplace world, so that we can um, kind of fine tune that to be in the most adaptive place uh, at any given time. Yeah. Oh, and some really great questions coming in. Um, so Ruth, yeah, the definition of a threat 
it's that's a great question. And it's it well, it can be relatively subjective, especially in the workplace. I mean, if it's a social interaction and maybe you're not sure why your manager told you that you did something wrong, or even just being told that you did something wrong is um is going to trigger um a sense of, you know, being correct is, is going to, is, is a threat for us. And it, and it actually engages those, those threat areas. So it is a subjective, um, feeling, I would say, um, same thing with the physical threats as well. So if you see kind of a shape in like in the distance, if you perceive it to be, or you think it could be a bear, you're going to have that that response. If you think it's just a rock, let's say you're not going to have that threat response. So it's what you perceive to be a threat. And that will matter depending on your prior experiences too. So, you know, we, this is not necessarily the topic of the conversation, but if you have had chronic situations of threats, um, you might be more sensitive to different kinds of triggers and more likely to fly into a level three threat, let's say, um, whereas those around you might not. So that's kind of like an interesting, interesting tangent. While you have, you know, a hundred people in a room, one might, um, one, you know, situation might occur and only about half of the people might respond to that threat and others might not see it as a threat. Um, so that's something to really important to keep in mind. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's more, I think people would agree more generally in the physical realm of threats, right? And the way that they uh, elucidated these different threat responses and the shift in activity uh, and neural activity as threat approaches is through manipulating the severity, the perceived severity and proximity of a threat. Mm-hmm. And they literally did that. So the way I can kind of go into how they, the, the sort of typical experiment they use to um, uncover our threat response, basically they'll put your hand in a chamber and you can't see into it, but they'll tell you that you're, that they're filming inside of that chamber and you get to, you get to watch on a screen what's going on. And what they're showing you on that screen makes you believe that a spider is either kind of far away from you or getting closer to your hand, even though it's not, there's not actually a spider in the chamber, but they've convinced you to believe that. And what they've shown is they, they, you know, on the screen, they, um, show the spider coming closer and closer to your hand, and then they're monitoring your neural activity as it gets closer. So in the physical world, it's very clear, okay, this is a threat, and I should my response should increase in severity as the threat gets closer. But if we take that, and I think to Emma's point, to the social world, right, It's there's, there's far more subjectivity there, right? We can use those same like analogous components that like, if someone rolled their eyes at me or insulted me, that could, I could perceive that as a severe threat. And to the degree to which it would like impact my life might be how close it is to me in proximity to some degree, right? So it's those same underlying components, but they're far uh, they're far more open to interpretation in the social world than they are in the physical world, right? Um, so anyway, okay, that's my tangent too. You got one, I got one too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. And, and we could go on, there are so many great questions in here go on for so long talking mm-hmm. about the different um, variables in this, the different factors. So, you know, and I think all of, with all of this, I think it's really important to, before even going into how you manage yourself and how you maybe like set up an environment to manage your organization like this and set up for a good environment for less threat inducing responses, let's say, is that everyone is coming to the table with a different set of experiences and a different perception of what's going on around them. Um, So that's kind of an important like prior um, thought process to have going in. But I think what's what everyone is kind of thinking about now is given what we know about like the neural circuitry of the threat response, um, how can we develop 
strategies or tactics that we can build into our everyday to take on when we feel these threats coming on. So when we feel like a slight distraction, maybe a level one threat, like how can we manage that? Or when we feel like we're, we're instantly, there's adrenaline, we feel hot in the face and we we're, we have, we're frozen, essentially, we can't speak. Um, what are the tactics that we can take on? So it's important first to understand how to label those, like to feel like, I feel like maybe I'm in a level two threat. This feels like it's, it's close, but not right on top of me kind of thing. Like what are the strategies that I can do? Um, so this is where it comes into this idea and we'll, we'll, talk about different strategies, but one of them is developing, let's say like a shared understood language across, um, across all of us. But let's talk about like, how would you break up these strategies, um, Ryan, going through the three levels of threat? Yeah. So I think, you know, the one thing to consider is to, to understand, you know, the tools in your emotional regulation toolbox to some degree, and then to start understanding what situation should prompt you to use those appropriately. Um, and I think partly too, you know, it's great to use them um, like in the moment, like I'm already, you know, at a exceedingly high threat level. I need to, I need to bring myself back down and there's definitely techniques for that, but it's also worthwhile to kind of think about this preemptively. And I think one, uh, one of the key and regardless of preemptive or not, the really gold standard in emotional regulation is this kind of reframing and reappraisal approach, uh, which is basically to, uh, to kind of think about alternative or let's say adaptive ways to interpret our uh, our circumstances or the situations that we're that we're faced with. And I, I remember seeing a, a comment in the chat about like, you know, what a threat is, it's irrelevant. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? To some degree, right? To the degree to which I'm threatened by something is, is on me and based on my experiences. And so I think for us, like, that's clearly true. And we can take some control over what interpretation we choose to, to run with, right? That we choose to take on. And that's really what reappraisal is, right? And it's an incredibly powerful approach. And we can even imagine, you know, I, I can have like two or three different interpretations of events and I can go through, you know, what would it be like to really follow through with this interpretation versus another? How are my emotions changing as I'm feeling this sort of thing, right? Um, and so I think for, you know, what we're saying for at a level one threat where, you know, arguably that's an adaptive response to most workplace tasks. We have a bit of motivation. We have a little bit of stress. Maybe there's a deadline coming up. There's a bit of pressure, but it's, we're in that kind of sweet spot of, of, of getting done what we need to get done. You know, that might be a situation where at that point we're exposed to that, um, you know, that next level of, of issue that comes up, like, like Emma talked about in those scenarios, right? This is when, you know, some other problem comes up that you're trying to deal with while you're, um, you know, focusing on the task at hand. And so this would be a, state, a situation where even if we're not put into like, let's say a level two threat uh, because of that added stress, we might, it might behoove us to, to approve, to reappraise that, that, uh, that situation so that we don't get there, right? So it's sort of a preemptive approach in terms of, hey, I need to be interpreting my world in a way that's realistic, that's accurate. And that's, I think, arguably, most importantly, that's adaptive, right? That'll put me in the best spot to move forward uh, and, and, and really bring my best self. So um, mm. that kind of encompasses the entirety of, of uh, reappraisal. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is sometimes, you know, we talk about, and if anyone has listened to a lot of our podcasts and read a lot of our work, we do talk about level one threat. Sometimes it's something that does, it, it is distracting, but what if we can use it as kind of like the sweet spot for focus? I mean, sometimes a level one threat is where we kind of want to be. If we have a deadline, we want to be alert, but focused at that job at hand. Um, anything could come in and distract 
practice further and, you know, maybe throw us into a level two threat. Um, but I think if we can, as Ryan is saying, reappraise that feeling to, okay, this is going to help me focus. This is a challenge. Um, this is what I need to pay attention to this task and, and hit that deadline. Um, then it can be almost like a good thing, unless you're going into a brainstorming session where you need to be creative, let's say, or just like relax with friends. You might not want to be at a level one threat. So some threat, right, Donna, some threat might be useful if you maybe reframe it as a challenge, let's say. Yeah, that, I think that's right. And uh, and speaking of creativity, you know, it's worth kind of balancing realistic reappraisals and also create and kind of using creativity to fuel a, re, a realistic uh, reappraisal. Because mm-hmm. what they've shown from the research is that the most productive, uh, adaptive uh, uh, ultimately the best like reappraisers are those that that do it in a creative way not mm-hmm. not preposterously right because we don't want to go into the realm of unreasonable interpretations mm-hmm. of our world but we want to be we want to have access to like a uh, a complex array of possible interpretations of our situation right and, and then we can choose the one that uh is sensible and, and will like i said kind of help you to bring your best self yeah and um a question earlier by ruth was talking about learning emotional regulation throughout life i think what we're talking about here are different strategies that do take time to learn and develop and become natural so if you're learning these different strategies throughout life it might be easier to pick up one or the other it was absolutely and the best way to learn and this is well uh supported in the research too to learn how to read reappraises to do it is to try mm-hmm. um and that starts with, you know, we kind of end up giving, uh, you know, such similar advice, but it's the same one that comes up in the reappraisal literature is that uh, the two things that you need to be a to grow in your ability to reappraise is the belief that you can grow in your ability to reappraise and then the opportunity to, to try, you know, yeah. those are the key things that to learn and that's uh, reappraisal is no different. No, that's a great question by Barbara. Is it important? Is it important how to phrase this reappraisal? Say it out loud, write it down. What do you know based on the literature? Uh, that's such a uh, such a great uh, point. So, huh, so saying it out, it depends. I think in terms of saying it out loud, because we might be getting into the realm of labeling, which we're going to talk uh, talk about next. Like, you know, if you're reappraising the situation versus playing around with different emotions that might be elicited, and you're saying those emotions out loud, that has a crystallizing effect, which we'll talk about. Anyway, we'll get into that next. So. But so there's so much that we're going to get into next that that's coming into. So one of the power, one of the benefits of saying it out loud is to, um, and we'll talk, like I said, we'll talk about this later, is uh, to utilize like a collective, to do a social reappraisal, right? Reappraise together, reappraise as a team, uh, as a family, if that's appropriate, right? If that's an appropriate mm-hmm. situation, but to use like, and once again, this is what we talk about in terms of uh in the context of learning too, is that we learn so much from the insights of others. Once it, it, the same thing is true for reappraisal, you can benefit so much from the reappraisal that someone else comes up with, right? As long as you're, or, or that you come up with together if you're uh, doing that collaboratively too. So in that sense, certainly being vocal about your reappraisal uh, can have huge benefits if uh, if you're kind of doing it as a team. Yeah. And one last thing before we go on, it's uh, and kind of important to remember, this is a great strategy to use when you still have, I guess, the way we like to talk about the resources still within kind of your prefrontal cortex. It does take a bit of cognitive control to kind of think of the reappraisal. What is the reframe? Like, what is the reason that I'm feeling this way? Um, once we get to higher levels of like felt threat, it becomes harder to do that. And so that's why the strategies tend to change as we start kind of like losing our 
um, our resources in an area that allows us to be flexible with our thought process and have that creativity that slowly starts to lose, let's say. I love what uh, Liz said in the chat here too about um, kind of gamifying reappraisal mm -hmm. that like, you know, yep. test yourself how many different uh, uh, ways can I look at a situation that that's, uh, that's awesome. That's such a perfect way to build that like reappraisal muscle too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is kind of a muscle. It does take time um, to build up. And that's why these, these strategies can be practiced, um, you know, before you necessarily are thrown into a threatful situation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So we're moving on to level two threat. Let's say the deadline shifts and then you're told that you did something wrong. Um, you've kind of just like shot up a little bit. Now you're less focused. Um, you're really distracted. You're not sure, you know, should you snap at someone or what, what you should do? You can't even focus on the task at hand. So what's going on and what kind of strategy can we use? Yeah. So in this case, um, I think it's important to, like I said, kind of understand the entirety of the, the emotional regulation uh, tools you have in your toolbox. And another one to consider um, when maybe, you know, you're just too stressed, too, uh, too frustrated, whatever it may be, to give a, uh, to really go down the reappraisal pathway, I would still try, you know, I think reappraisal, as we know from the, from the literature, it's really the gold standard um, in many ways. So I would give that a shot, but if it's just, you're just failing in that way, uh, one really great and really sort of the number two uh, emotional regulation uh, approach and, and can be kind of used with reappraisal is labeling, right? So this is to label your emotion, uh, to, to put words, words to your emotion. And you'll find, and you can even see this sort of, I think you could, you could sort of feel this too, that you get a, a, a calming effect through the clarity of putting a word to your emotion, because oftentimes like when we, when we're feeling strong emotion, but we don't, uh, verbally identify them where that emotion is compounded with like the uncertainty uh, within that emotion, like I'm just feeling like rage, right? Something like really strong. I, even that I put a word to it, but you could kind of imagine that feeling versus like a more nuanced emotion that's that's directly um, aligned with the situation that I'm facing, right? So you get sort of a calming effect through that clarity, uh, through, through a labeling technique. So I think that's it's really valuable too. And it's good to be able to do that um, in a way that can also communicate your emotions to others as well, which we'll, I believe, get into yeah. at some point. Yeah, and it actually ties really nicely into, into Ruth's question. So if, if we're not sure how to label the emotions, maybe you can... Yeah label the situation. So this kind of brings us to one of our, one of our best models here, the scarf model. So how could we, how is this kind of like a great tool to use to label situations? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's useful to label situations and mm -hmm. to like label the source of your emotion too, to some degree, but uh, yeah, so this is our scarf, our scarf model, which really encompasses uh, the five domains of, of kind of social threat and reward that we might face throughout our day. Um, and I don't know how much time, how much detail to go in here, but they contain, uh, the model contains okay. status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness, which are the ways in which we can be socially threatened or socially rewarded. So, uh, and so for me, the, like one of the real critical benefits of the SCARF model in terms of kind of going down the emotional regulation path is to first use it as a way to like clarify a circumstance that you're in. So like if you imagine that you're on a, uh, on a team and you've been delegated some task, but there's objectively just not enough information you know, to know exactly what to do. You can say with the team, like this situation has a certainty issue, right? It's not, uh, that, that's like inherent in the situation and having a 
a shared language in that way gets everyone on the same page, you know, kind of immediately using that language, right? Which is so valuable. So now you can say you've benefited in a few ways. You haven't yet addressed your own personal emotion, which I'll get into why that's important uh, next. And you've also aligned on uh, like seeing the problem in the world the same way across the team. And then you can get some, and, and now maybe depending on threat level and whatnot, you can do a social reappraisal potentially. What do we do about it? How do we, uh, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for us to kind of pave our own path, right? We're not giving enough detail on how to do this task. Maybe we can fill those blanks ourselves. Maybe we want to take that approach, which would be arguably like an autonomy reward, right? That you can reappraise the situation into a reward for, of autonomy as opposed to a threat to certainty. Uh, but you can use that by using this language communicatively. And, um, What's useful about that as well, thinking about labeling the situation, is that while it is really beneficial to label your own emotion, there's somewhat recent research that have um, put forward the possibility that there's like a crystallizing effect to labeling your own emotion. So if you do label your own emotion, you the idea is that you sort of have to run with that emotion connected to this to whatever the situation is. And that might, that might be good, right? That might be the exact proper emotion uh, that's adapted to the situation. But if it's not, you're going to have a difficult, a more difficult time reappraising after you've sort of crystallized that emotion to, to, to take on another emotion um, uh, as elicited by that situation. So that's why I like, I, I think it's really useful to clarify the situation, use a shared language to do that, maybe reappraise and then, and then kind of use a labeling as a really valuable tool, but one where you're more confident that you're in the right realm of emotional, uh, of emotions to, uh, to kind of be adaptive in that, in that circumstance. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I think, um, and this is going to come up later, but this is, you know, essentially the same kind of tool we can use as leaders or managers to kind of set the environment. I mean, it's one way to communicate to others, like, this is why I'm feeling this way, or this is the situation, you know, this this answers the question of, um, we had a question earlier asking, like, what if you didn't intend to um, insult someone or to cause them to have like a threat response? It's, you know, it's, you know, maybe not intentional, but now you're clear why this person was feeling threatened. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't clarity or certainty around the task. And so they felt like a huge sense of ambiguity, which is, which is threatening. Um, or, you know, like you were just trying to be constructive in your criticism, but you didn't realize that actually like impacted their level of status. So their sense of value to the team. Um, so just giving that little bit of information, you can, you as let's say a leader or manager can change the way you're communicating or try to kind of fix that after the fact. Yeah. Such a great point, because like we said earlier, there's different ways to interpret different valid ways to interpret the same situation. So, you you know, it's a great way to um, understand the perspective of someone else if they can communicate with this clear language. I think that's a, a great point. Really valuable. Yeah. All right. So now we're thrown into a level three threat. You can't even focus on remembering the letters of the scarf um, model to even figure out what domain you've been like impacted by probably all of them. Um, and all you feel is adrenaline and you just want to run from the room or just freeze. Um, so this is sometimes, and we sometimes show this like reinforcing cycle. This is something that can, can happen and why it's actually really important to develop strategies when you're in this like very heightened sense of threat uh, where you're completely frozen or you have um, lost the ability to make the right kinds of decisions in that situation. Um, and it is because of the cognitive impact that stress has, that threat inducing stress has, you're impacted cognitively so much so that you've lost a lot of self-regulation. So you can't necessarily make the right decisions in the moment. So you might snap at someone or you might respond too quickly. Um, 
And so in these kinds of situations where you can't necessarily say this was a status threat because you can't even speak, what would be the kind of strategy that you would think of, Ryan? Yeah. And in those situations, um, and, and yeah, it's also so important to understand that like that stress response, if, if it results in you not bringing your best self to the table, you, you might act in a way that increases your stress, right? And anyway, so yeah, that's this reinforcing cycle that we get that we, that ends up getting us into level three and maybe keeping us there. But anyway, uh, uh, Donna nailed it in the chat. Uh, you know, she, she calls it the walk away. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, at some point, you know, we need to be aware that we're in such a level of threat that we just need to get away from the situation. Go for a walk. If, you know, if someone who likes to, you know, go for a jog, get a workout on, if that's your style, do that. Um, it's well established that physical motion is a, is a really useful regulator in these sort of circumstances. So whatever your version of that is, that, uh, that can be a useful approach. But yeah, uh, removing yourself from the situation, I think, ultimately is is, is what uh, is left in your tool, toolbox when you're in this level of threat. Um, and I think it's also important to uh, think about all of these things socially, too. So even that, like giving the uh, the acceptance and the encouragement that other people can do that without it being a, you know, a status destroyer or anything like that. You're Sometimes we all get there and it's, it's good to, to be able to create an environment where it's acceptable to to do that that sort of thing to leave the room to what to go for a walk uh when necessary as well but uh yeah at that level of threat that's what's that's what's left in our toolbox i think absolutely and and speaking of socially i mean you can drive others you know to jump on this reinforcing cycle too i mean your response to them can be the threat that drives them onto a cycle so it can easily spiral up just as easily as it can spiral down if you walk away um but that actually kind of teases us up for kind of like our last um, major chapter here, which is like, how how do you create the environment? Um, we know that like a key differentiating factor that sets great leaders and managers apart is their ability to create the climate or the environment needed to kind of like reduce those those. Um, like large threat inducing responses or create an environment of psychological safety, which would be one that could allow um, others in your organization more easily to share how they're feeling. Right. And the reason that this is, um, this is the case is because we've talked about this underlying sense of threat and like the neural circuitry involved. Um, we know that it's, it's induced when you experience threats to you, when you actually experience them to you, both physical and social, but it's the same thing as when we observe them. So someone on your team, you know, is spoken down to you or someone, uh, you know, in your organization, you see in a conflict that can impact you in the same way with the same neural circuitry. Um, so that is sometimes we call this a contagion effect, but it is, um, it's really important to keep in mind in terms of your environment. Yeah, absolutely. As humans, we're particularly tuned into our perception of fairness in the world, regardless of whether or not it directly impacts us. Uh, and that's one of the things that separates us from our uh, like pre-human ancestors is that we really have that uh, a sense of fairness that we can detach from our own like kind of short-term experiences. Um, yeah, and, and that just says, you know, to this greater point that, yeah, we really want to create an environment where, uh, where threat is diminished because it'll have this compounding effect um, irrespective of the fact that any individual threat may or may not impact you directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's important to think about them almost as like a preemptive buffer before 
kind of going in and it can happen and you can use it after, after situations occur, but, but also before. And one of the, one of the tools again, that we can talk about is how to use the scarf model to create a sense of psychological safety. And this can be, you know, as you're developing a team, like how do you set the, the rules in place? How do you create a sense of certainty for, you know, what is everybody doing um, on this team? What are their roles? Like, so there's, there's no ambiguity in why someone is there and what their role is. They feel like they have a sense of belonging. They feel that sense of relatedness. Um, you know, how is everyone treated on this team? There's the sense of fairness and, you know, am I value the sense of status? So, you know, that can set up the situation, but how else can SCARF be used to create that sense of psychological safety? Yeah, I, I love thinking about using SCARF. Um, so we've talked about using it in the moment. We've talked about using it to label a situation, to label our own interpretation of a situation, right? But we can also think about using it preemptively, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're getting at through kind of scarf buffers, right? To say like, it's not to say that we're facing a certainty threat, but it would but it would really benefit the whole team if we have like super strong role clarity uh, mm -hmm. at, at the beginning of the creation of this team uh, to prevent the possibility of a strong certainty th threat coming uh you know, in the future. Same thing with autonomy, right? What what does my team have freedom to to uh, to explore? Where can we uh, be creative? Where can we kind of courageously uh, experiment with new possibilities and new work processes? And where can we not, right? Set those boundaries and make them uh, really clear. Build relatedness uh, as the team comes together, as opposed to like picking up on a lack of connection on a team and then trying to fix that, right? Which you should do if that's the case, but build that preemptively, right? So we can use SCARF to go through to uh, to also mm -hmm. build these buffers in that, that'll protect us. And I think will be a, a critical part. It wouldn't be the entirety in my mind of a psychologically safe environment, but it would get you, it, it would be a great uh, place to start and a great mm -hmm. kind of light to, to make sure all your boxes are checked in some way. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting question from Barbara in the chat. Um, you know, she's heard this, this conversation, I don't mean to scarf you, but you know, that's not necessarily the best because what scarf domain are you, are you going to scarf them in? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think the, but, um, like I can feel a little anxiety just from that, like what's coming. Right. So I think there's like an inherent threat regardless of what comes next. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I would probably, you know, if, if you're saying, I guess it depends on the situation, but for me, if you're saying, I don't mean to scarf you, but you could probably do a little bit more processing internally first and try to understand, you know, what is the hypothetical scarf threat that could be coming and, and how can I just take that out of the scenario preemptively as yeah. opposed to like, okay, well, it's here, it's coming. So sorry. Right. You know, <laughs> so maybe there's a better approach. You know, I could imagine a world where some situations you might not be able to come up with a better approach. And I think, probably being prepared for something that could be in a scarf threat domain might be beneficial. But um, yeah, I mean, I think when I, when I'm, and I've said that, I think I've said that exact same thing before too. I don't mean to scarf you, but, um, but that probably should be a cue to think a little bit more deeply about the situation before I say something like that. Yeah. I mean, you might know if you know scarf, you probably know what domain you might be hitting. So maybe instead you can reframe that sentence, not to, not to devalue someone or not to, you know, add uncertainty to the situation, provide a little bit of certainty, or even just say transparently, I don't actually know the result of this or the reason that we're doing this, but, or, you know, all of the answers, but so that you're both on the same page. Um, 
Or as we often try to, you know, suggest when we're talking about SCARF is if you're going to provide a lack of certainty, provide a bit of fairness too, like ascend a little bit of reward. Like, you know what, we're all feeling this way. We're all in the same boat, um, but there aren't answers in this sense. Or, you know, I'd really love your input here. This, you know, can give someone a sense of value or status um, while you know that you will be providing them, you know, um, no autonomy, let's say in a certain situation. So try to kind of balance that threat that, you know, is coming instead of telling them it's coming with a little bit of reward or even acknowledge I, you know, after the fact, I understand that might've been a bit of an autonomy threat, but I'm going to give you a little bit of certainty in X and Y, for instance. Yeah. And it, and it also shed light on how you can, um, frame a situation. You know, I was just having a conversation the other day about sort of, uh, how to, conceptualize of inclusion. And if we think about sort of, you know, optimizing inclusion, for instance, as opposed to maximizing it, you know, there's a situation where it might make sense to uh, limit the number of people in a meeting for whatever purpose, right? And so like, that's a framing issue, right? So it's not to say that you're excluded from that meeting because you're not valued there. It's because you're really highly valued elsewhere, right? So that, that so you might say, hey, initially, I'm just going to like, whatever, erase this person from the meeting invite. Oh, that would be a status threat, pretty obviously, right? So let's use that as a trigger to uh, uh, to correct how I'm framing this this uh, decision to the person, right? And I think in most cases that would be an honest reframing, um, you know, in the sense that yeah, that is the reason they were excluded here is because their time is more is more valuable elsewhere, and just make that super clear, right? So I think we can use scarf to like identify those potential scarf threat triggers and, and preemptively adjust our the way that we uh, uh, that we navigate communication. Yeah. Absolutely. I think a lot of it is, you know, being transparent as possible um, and setting the environment up. I mean, if we think about psychological safety, it's it's, you know, it's in setting up the team, but and, you know, in like making it, let's say, safe to speak up. But also when you have when you're in the middle of a discussion, I mean, as managers and leaders, we do have to give criticism, constructive criticism and help others improve um, and to show them where they might be making errors. Um, that's kind of all part of the process, having these hard conversations. So I think it's important to understand that when you're in that hard conversation, using SCARF is a great way to continue the conversation and continue to send as many of the SCARF rewards as you can, um, understanding that it is going to be a tough situation to be told that maybe you, you would like them to do something in, in a different way, let's say, or to work on this skill that isn't quite, you know, at the level that it's needed to be at, for instance. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Great point. Anyway, so as we move on, um, one of our latest ideas that we've been talking about, and this is an article that Ryan wrote, is an article about collective, um, well, why don't you tell, tell the story of the Yeah, article. sure. So, it's, uh, yeah. you know, this was, I thought, really captivating work. And I think oftentimes in research, it, it, confirms a lot of what humans already know or what we already sort of do. Uh, but but I, nonetheless, I thought it was a, a neat little uh, added bit, which is which is what they showed is that reappraisal is that much more beneficial if it's done socially or done collectively. Uh, and so what the, more specifically what they showed is that they put people in a situation where they you know had a bad experience in one way or another and they had either two conditions one where they they asked the person who experienced the bad situation to come up with their own reappraisal with the goal of uh, minimizing kind of negative emotion or they had a friend give that person a re a, a way to reappraise 
and, and to sort of and to ask them to take that reappraisal on. They followed up, I can't remember exactly how long after, maybe a month after, and they exposed them to the same situation again. And they um, monitored which group had a stronger threat response after having that same experience again. And not surprisingly, what they showed is that those that took on their friend's reappraisal had a had a far uh, like better adaptive response to that that negative situation when they were exposed to it the next time. And so the overarching point there is that, you know, we should be utilizing our colleagues, our friends, our family for reappraisal as well. We should be doing it socially, right? We should be building these interpretations together. And, and, and the research shows that that's such a clear uh, beneficial path. And we already know that, right? When we have a tough situation, we, we might reach out to our best friend at work, or I call my mom all the time, right? Uh, you know, that's that's my strategy, right? Because we know, we know that there's added benefit there. Um, this research strongly confirms it. And I think it would really benefit us to, to be really like explicit about how, just how beneficial that can be in the workplace as well. <laughs> Tony, that could be what your wife is for as well. <laughs> <laughs> she will she will give me a hard time uh for, for calling my mom too much yes I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's true i mean it maybe it'll it kind of forces you to do all of the strategies that we've had it forces you to um to reappraise to label to actually like talk out why you're feeling this way and like talk the situation out and maybe you're you know you're venting to this person um well after the fact so it also gives you a chance to kind of separate yourself physically from um from the situation or have a pet. I know my cats listen to everything that I complain about and they don't help me through it. Other, they don't give me any advice moving forward, but they do listen and they agree with me. <laughs> and they agree with you. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it's their behavior that you have to reappraise as they pop in. Uh, Do they uh, walk away or <laughs> Do they listen? Yeah, but that's true. I mean, I mean, so if it is, you know, in addition to all of these individual strategies that you build um, for yourself, are there people that you have that you can easily go to? And, and I'm not sure Ryan in this study, did they, this was specifically with friends or was, was it with unknowns? No, these were acquaintances. I don't, they weren't great friends, but they were people who knew each other. Yeah. Um, which I think fits nicely with, you know, work team. I think it was uh, sort of trying to mimic that scenario. Yeah. And maybe an interesting thing to, you know, if, if you are in a situation and you're trying to like get help reappraising it, um, maybe talk to multiple people. I mean, we talk all the time about the importance of having diverse perspectives like, um, in, in a way to solve a problem. So why not get diverse ways to reappraise a situation? Um, everyone has experienced different kinds of threats in the workplace. So why not, you know, maybe find the one that works best for you? Um yeah, I think oftentimes, and we've kind of already uh, hit this point, but as a as a working team, we're probably experiencing, you know, the same situation together, right? So we can all, you know, we can do a collective reappraisal that we all take on. It's not about, it's not always about, you know, having some third party help me interpret my events and vice versa. It could be that we're doing this together because we're all impacted in some way as well. Uh, so to sort of make that more of a collective open process, uh, I think can be really valuable too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, given we know that reappraisal might be a bit more difficult when you're feeling um, a super high level of of threat, um, having someone who isn't in that situation, they'll be more creative. Um, yeah, some great questions coming in too. Does some freedom? So this question from Courtney is interesting. Does some freedom to express strong emotion ever help mitigate a threat response? 
Yeah, I think that's such a great uh, link to psychological safety, because if you look back and Emma, we we, we uh, went on this path at some point in, in a blog from from years ago, um, you know, where they talked about like the the expressing negative emotion in the workplace was a taboo for so long. And it probably still is to some degree in certain workplaces. So I, I think, you know, unfortunately, if the culture isn't right, expressing a strong negative emotion will hurt you in the workplace, right? Uh, because of the sort of toxic culture that may exist, right? So I think that's like, that highlights just how important it is to have an environment where, yeah, you can express a negative emotion without fear of repercussion, because we have the acknowledgement that we're all human and we, and we, you know, and we can benefit from that. So assuming the environment is, is uh, properly tuned for that, then yes, it would absolutely be a valuable thing to be able to do. Um, Mm -hmm. But you have to do that culture work to, to get there too, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, instilling an environment of psychological safety, making sure you're everyone feels as, uh, or, you know, embraces a growth mindset, because that's all part of the process of being able to fail and learn from your mistakes, because that mistakes are also those that cause us to feel a sense of threat as well. Yeah, definitely. So any other questions that are coming in? Any other thoughts, Ryan, as you're going through these questions? No, I love the engagement in the chat though. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we've missed some. But yeah, if any other questions are coming up, I, I'd love to keep the conversation going. We have oh, just a few minutes left here. So yeah, I'd love to uh, hear any other thoughts that are coming up from the audience. Yeah. And I guess another thought that comes up is, you know, as uh, many people here are likely managers or leaders, um, role modeling this kind of behavior to help. So role modeling how how you're feeling and being able to share your, your feelings in a situation. I think that that is all kind of part of the same package. So, you know, being able to set, set up an environment of psychological safety, but also showing that you yourself as a manager um, feel uncertain, feel threatened by certain situations. Um, I think that can set up the environment for others to try out these different, um, (laughs) these different scenarios. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, (laughs) That's right. And like Tony's comment here about, uh, you know, telling people that you want them, uh, to tell them how their actions impact you. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's so valuable. I think SCARF can help uh, with that too. I think that's such a, a valuable uh, a way to use SCARF. I think you can also, you can, that, that helps like sort of facilitate communication. Like, hey, that when you do X, Y, and Z, I, I see that as, a, as an autonomy threat. Um, I think that facilitates the conversation. And I think it probably diminishes the the tension between the two people to have a shared language like that that, can, that you can use to, uh, sort of hash it out. So I think I think that's a, a really valuable practice. And I think SCARF can make that, you know, less of a nice to have and more of something that you can actually build into the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And being able to do it, you know, soon after the event. I mean, as, as Ruth says, containing stuff does not work well. So just think about the lack of focus that you have. That will continue until until it resolves. So resolve it sooner rather than later, even if it's just for your own productivity and working on your team. Yeah, and that and that brings up the sort of the third emotional regulation technique that that backfires pretty much across the board, which is suppression. Right, mm-hmm. suppressing your emotions uh, builds anxiety, it builds stress, it diminishes physical health. Right, it has every possible negative outcome, um, mm-hmm. and then and nonetheless, it's a it's also a commonly used uh, attempt at emotional regulation. Absolutely. Um, 
And a great question coming in the Q&A is, and I guess we can finish soon up after, but is to how to maintain a healthy environment when the company is in the middle of changes, such as murders, mergers, or as a leader, you do not have the, like as the clarity to give to your employees. So, you know, you can use SCARF in those situations too. you know, provide as much clarity and certainty as you can, even if it is, you know, I don't have much more clarity other than X, Y, and Z, you know, I can tell you this, this, and this, um, but provide the sense of fairness that you can, the sense of relatedness, you know, I'm here if you want to talk about this, or, you know, your input is incredibly valuable, um, as we go through this merger, for instance. So there is a lot of uncertainty, um, and volatility in organizations now. So these kinds of strategies could be incredibly useful. Yeah, and it can also help you from the sort of the change management side too, right? Like if I'm yeah. sending out different communications uh, dictating the process of change, I might think like, well, that could be perceived as a status threat if we, uh, you know, tell everyone that AI is going to take 40% of your job or something crazy like that, right? Like some some of these kind of new age issues that we're dealing with, right? So we can, we can use uh, SCARF to to kind of preemptively gauge how uh, how in this case change management could be taken negatively and 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 work to mitigate that uh, in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one more thing, Barbara, um, the idea of being able to share you know those domains that are that you're most sensitive to. So you know, we talk about scarf all the time here, and you know, we have maybe different contexts where certain scarf domains are more or less important to us, but. If we know our coworkers may be more sensitive domains, we can work to kind of buffer those situations um, beforehand. Yeah, and especially if we know what situations those tend to uh, occur too, right? We I think we often um, have situations where, you know, we might not be, status might not be in our mind on a certain uh, situation at work, but maybe it's very pressing in another, right? So if we start um, understanding that and being more vocal about that so that our colleagues can understand how we're seeing our workplace, uh, I think that can be really useful as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, this is so much fun. Um, any other thoughts, Ryan, as we kind of pass it back over to Shelby. No, I thought this was a blast. I'm happy I got to do this again with you, Emma, and I'm sure we'll be right mm-hmm. back here before too long. Yep, absolutely. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuroleadership Institute. You can help us make organizations more human and higher performing by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast. Our producers are the Neuroleadership Institute marketing and brand team, including Shelby Wilburn, Evan McFalls, Tony Clare, Allison James, and many, many more. Thanks so much for being here with us today, and we hope to hear from you again soon. Take care.